You turn in your Bibles um, to Genesis chapter 1. It's reading the first two verses of Genesis chapter 1. This will be our sermon text this evening. It's page 3 in the Pew Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And our New Testament reading is James chapter 1, 1 through 18. In particular here, pay attention to verse 18 where uh, the Lord uh, speaks through James of his eternal, uh, his eternal being as our creator, the one who gives us every good gift. James 1, verses 1 through 18. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray together. O gracious Lord God, we pray that once again you would give us the word of life, that you take your word and you would take our hearts and you would plant your word in our hearts. Plant it deep. Let our hearts be the good soil that bears fruit unto eternal life. Let our hearts not be hard. Let our hearts not be filled with the weeds that choke out your word. But make our hearts receptive to what you say to us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Starting a series now in Genesis. Um, if that sounds daunting, uh, it is. But uh, it's, a long, it's a long book. It's the second longest book in the Old Testament. 
just shy of Jeremiah, by about 950 words. Long book, 50 chapters, a lot in it. We might take a break. We probably will at some point through the series. There's a few good break points in Genesis. We'll probably take a break and do something else and then come back. But a series in Genesis. Why Genesis? We could say somewhat facetiously, perhaps, well, it's in the Bible, isn't it? So why not Genesis, right? All the Word of God is profitable for us. It's all profitable for teaching, correction, rebuke, and training in righteousness. Old Testament, New Testament, all of it. So why not? But there's something, you know, there's something, I think, especially important about Genesis. Right? It's foundational. It's the first book in the whole Bible. Um, this, is, this is where the whole story starts. Right? This, everything in Scripture, in a sense, is flowing downstream from Genesis. Or you could picture it differently, perhaps a better metaphor would be Genesis is, is the, 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 has kind of the, the DNA of the whole story of Scripture in it. And everything is growing up like a great tree out of Genesis and putting out branches and spreading, but it's all contained right there in the DNA of, of Genesis itself. We get the whole, the whole thing here, the very beginning, the foundations, the great themes of Scripture. So if you don't, if you don't understand Genesis, then in a lot of ways you're going you're gonna to miss that as you go through Scripture. You're not going to know where these themes begin, and you're going to miss um, some important aspects of God's, God's truth. But Genesis is not just crucial to us for understanding Scripture better. It's not just going to help us think better. It's also going to help us live better. It's profitable for training and righteousness. Right? It's, it's, it's a useful book. Right, it shows us who God is. It shows us who we are. It shows us what's wrong with the world. It shows us God's plan of salvation, what God is doing about what's wrong with the world. It's just as relevant now as it was when Moses, under the inspiration of the Spirit, wrote it so many thousands of years ago. So it's an important book for understanding the Scripture, and it's an important book for us to know how to live as Christians. As we dive in, I want to do uh, a couple of things. Just first, first of all, um, as we said, Genesis is a long book. It's a big book. Um, it's easy, as it'll be, it would be easy to, as we go through it to get lost in the details. Um, we'll dig into the details as we go, but I don't want to get lost in them. We want to keep the big picture in view throughout. Um, what is Genesis then? What's, what's it all about? What's the main point of the whole book? What would you say? How would you answer that question? What's the main point of Genesis? I'll take a stab at a working main point. We might shift this and might adjust it as we go. But, uh, but here, here's my working main point for, for now. Uh, Genesis is about God establishing his kingdom through his holy representative in a holy place by means of a covenant. Genesis is about God establishing his kingdom through his holy representative in a holy place by means of a covenant, right? We see at the beginning, we see God, the mighty creator, building this, this creation, this whole universe, the heavens and the earth and everything in them. And he's building it as a kingdom to manifest his own glory. And we see him place in this kingdom a representative, a holy uh, a, a, a steward under him, like a king over this kingdom, but a king under him, a holy representative. 
to carry out His commands and to fulfill uh, his, uh, his, his will for this kingdom. And we see Him create this holy place that He places this man in. And, and he, we see that God makes a covenant with Adam. And, and then we'll see, it goes on, right? After the fall, God makes a covenant with Abraham. And He does the same thing. He calls him to be a holy representative of His blessing. And He calls him to uh, go to a holy place and live in holy fellowship with Him as He builds His kingdom. And we see this pattern over and over through Genesis. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And the book ends with Israel, God's embryo of a kingdom, there in Egypt, but waiting to get back to the Holy Land according to God's promise. So this is what Genesis is about as a whole. And, and what we see then is that this is really the theme of the whole Bible, isn't it? Um, my Old Testament professor at Westminster, Johnny Gibson, um, put it very succinctly uh, like this. The whole Bible, he said, can be summed up like this. Kingdom through covenant. Kingdom through covenant. God building his kingdom through his covenant. That's what the Bible's about. That's what Genesis is about, and that's going to be our touchstone as we work through this. That's the big picture. Um, and we'll, be, we'll be working through it as we work through the details of Genesis. But now I want to turn to the little picture, right? Zoom in on the details now, and just look at the first two verses. Verse 1 and verse 2 of Genesis chapter 1. The first two verses here are loaded with meaning. They are rich with meaning. And in light of the theme we just articulated, right, about the kingdom and all that, they're focusing on the king. These first two verses focus all our attention on the king, God himself, our creator. They show us his eternal nature. They show us his divine nature. They show us that everything in the world is uh, created by him and exists for his glory and that there is no rival to him. And they command us then, in light of that, to worship and trust and serve only him. So let's work through these two verses together. We've got four headings to, to guide us through the text tonight. The first one is this, the eternal glory of God. Look with me at verse 1. Um, it says, uh, in the beginning, God. Just stop there. This is a stunning statement, isn't it? In the beginning, before anything else was, before there was any creation or any covenant or any, any of it, God was. God is saying, no one made me. Right? There, there, was, there was no other thing besides me. From all eternity, God has been God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the glorious Holy Trinity in perfect fellowship among the persons and just the Trinity forever and ever and ever from all eternity. This is the first lesson, brothers and sisters. The first lesson God wants us to learn in the whole Bible is that He is God and there is no other. Before everything else, that He exists and that He's not part of this creation. There's not a sliding scale with viruses and bugs at the bottom and then you go up to uh, cats and dogs and, or, or dogs and cats, if that's your preferred order, right? that goes up and then man and then, and then angels. And then at the top of this scale of being, 
is God. And we're all kind of on the same scale. It's a matter of degree, not kind. That's not what Scripture teaches. Right? Scripture says, in the beginning, there's God. And that's it. He's totally separate and distinct from His creation. He's the eternal one. This means several crucial things for us. First, it means that God didn't need creation. Sometimes uh, we can have the idea that God needed worshipers, or He needed to, to create. But He didn't need to. He had everything He could desire in Himself. Right? He's perfectly satisfied in Himself. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, living in glorious fellowship. He was perfectly pleased. Did not need or lack for anything. So he doesn't create uh, because he's bored or because he needs something. He creates out of the sheer decision of his will and of his own good pleasure, his decree. The second thing this means is that um, there is none like him. There's no equal to him, no rival to him. And all the religions around Israel, um, the creation stories that they told were full of rivals and conflict. They're, 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 they're multi-character dramas with lots of actors at the creation story of the other religions around them, right? Um, um, there's eternal chaos, or there's eternal matter, or there's these various gods and goddesses fighting for supremacy. And it's out of that conflict that creation comes. And the Bible says, no. There's one absolute creator God, and only one. And there is no rival. So as Moses writes, right, by God's inspiration, in the beginning, God, he's throwing the gauntlet down. And he's challenging Baal and Dagon and Marduk of the Babylonians, right? He's saying, what have you got to compare with my God? Right, your God has rivals and your God did not, was not omnipotent. Your God was not sovereign. Our God is the only true God. What an encouragement to Israel. They picture them just come out of Egypt, spent 400 years there, saw the power and the might of Egypt and thought maybe, perhaps, maybe there's something to their gods. But Moses writes, no, in the beginning, God and no other. Or picture Israel in, uh, in exile in Babylon. And they're, you know... What happened to Yahweh's people? They got crushed and exiled. Perhaps Marduk, the god of Babylon, is a more powerful god than Yahweh of Israel. Because our people are in exile under them. But no, they go, they read the first verse of their whole Bible. In the beginning, God, and no other. He is the one and only creator. Israel's whole existence would have, been a, would have been a struggle to believe this, right? They were constantly tempted either to trust other gods instead of the one and only God, or to fear other gods instead of the one and only God. But over against all these others, Genesis 1-1 says, there's only one. What about for us, brothers and sisters, right? We're not tempted to trust in Marduk. I don't think. Um, but there are idols, right? There are, there are other false gods of our own culture. And so the gauntlet is thrown down just as much for us, isn't it? 
We're tempted to trust the gods of technology and technological power, the gods of finance or political power. Right? The same fears and temptations that face the, the, that face the Israelites or the fears and temptations that face us. Right? Look at what the gods of the unbelieving world can do for them. Look at the success and the power and, and the privilege and the pleasure that those other gods can provide. But Genesis 1.1 says, there's only one God. Don't believe the false gods and their promises. There's only one infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God who was before everything. So we see here in Genesis 1.1, first of all, then the eternal glory of God. Second thing we see is the creative power of God. This is our second, second heading. The creative power of God. Of God, this, this is the second thing we see here in Genesis 1.1. It's just the, the overwhelming creative power of God that's on display. So we, we started with talking about how God's the eternal one, apart from creation, but now we see that he freely chooses to create. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the text tells us. Again, what, stand, what stands out here is the exclusivity of God's actions. Moses says, in the beginning, God created. And the Hebrew word there that's translated as create is a word that's only used of God in, uh, in the Hebrew Bible. Um, other, you know, other beings, man can fashion things and make things. But in the Hebrew, this word for create is reserved only for God. And he doesn't fashion and make things the way we do out of, right, order the material and you put the material together. No, he creates ex nihilo, right, out of nothing. In fact, um, he, in a sense, he creates, he creates in nothing, into nothing. It wasn't that God is there in the eternity past in this vast, empty space. There was no space. There was no time. Only the Creator. Nothing existed. Not even nothingness existed. And, and, and God, the Creator, creates. And suddenly there's space and there's time. And it's filled with this creation that He's made. This universe that He's made. And again, Moses is, Moses is challenging the other gods of the other nations here. As he, tells, as he tells Israel, God's the only Creator as well. Because the other gods didn't create the way Israel's God created. And their creation accounts. In other religions, um, chaos was there first. Conflict was there first. Rivals were there. For instance, in the Babylonian creation epic, the god Marduk defeats the goddess of chaos and then out of her carcass, right, splits the carcass in half and uses half for the earth and half for the, for the, for the heavens above. Right? And, and it's a story of conflict and arrival and pre-existent vying powers. Moses is saying, right, in the beginning, when God creates, there's no rival. He just creates out of his power and out of his glorious uh, ability. Theologian Meredith Klein says this, God's creation fiats are not battle cries, but architectural directives. God is showing us in Genesis 1.1 that His power is unrivaled. There's no challengers here. There's no conflict here. He's just creating out of His great power. 
at every stage of Israel's existence, they needed to be reminded of this, right? We, we talked about this, how they needed to be reminded of God's eternal nature, the singular character of God as the eternal one. They also needed to remember that God is the sovereign creator, right? They're there in Babylon. They look at the Babylonian story, right? Um, there's this God, Marduk, and he has this big fight with chaos, and he wins, and that's where the world comes from. But God is saying, no, I'm the only creator. Those are just empty stories. There's only one creator. And he created the world all by himself. He didn't have help and he didn't have a hindrance. He did it all by himself. And Moses is telling Israel, trust him. And those words, these words here, this idea, this fact that God is the only creator is uh, a challenge to our culture's creation story too, isn't it? Our, Our culture says that the universe is the result of time plus chance plus matter, right? There's chaos, a cosmic storm, a great accident that happened, and that's where everything comes from. But, but God's word says, no, there is God, and then he created out of his great power. And there's a great comfort for us there. That God and God alone is the creator. And he didn't create um, uh, out of a bare victory, but he created out of his great power and wisdom. And this teaches us, dear ones, that this world is not an accident that's spinning out of control, um, but it's the ordered result of God's good pleasure. And so we don't need to fear time or chance or chaos or any of these things. We trust in the God who made all things. This is how the text starts. This is how the Bible starts. It talks about God as our creator. What does God make? What does he create? The first thing we see, or this is our third heading, is that God creates the invisible dwelling of God. The invisible dwelling of God. Verse 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Some interpreters take this as like a summary statement of what happens in the whole chapter that um, this is sort of a heading, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, let me tell you what I mean. And then it goes on and breaks that down and illustrates that in the rest of the chapter. But if you take it that way, then you're starting at verse 2 with this formlessness and emptiness. And um, that, that would suggest that, that, that the visible creation has already been there without any explanation of where it came from. So I think it's best to take verse 1 as God's first initial act of creation, where he makes everything, and then in the rest of chapter 1, he forms it and shapes it and fills it. So he starts, verse 1, creating everything. What's the first thing that we're pointed to that he creates? Well, verse 1 says, heaven. He created the heavens. What are these heavens? Is it the sky? The atmosphere? The, 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 um, is outer space? I don't think so. Because if you look on in the text, it tells us that it's later on, right, that he, that he creates these things. Uh, it's verse, verse 8. God called the expanse heaven. There was evening, there was morning. The second day that he creates uh, the, the, the expanse of heavens that we see. But I think what we're seeing here is, as, as Moses says, God created the heavens, first of all, is that God created the invisible heavens. Right, the, the dwelling place of God in the heaven of heavens, as Nehemiah 9.6 describes it. This place where God is there in his infinite glory, surrounded by the hosts of heaven, the angels worshiping 
him as we see in Isaiah 6. Um, this is supported by Colossians 1.16, which says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. And Paul is talking there about the invisible heavenly dwelling place of God that God created. Right, the, this heaven where God is was not eternal, didn't exist before this. Only God is eternal. And in the beginning, he creates for himself, this first act of creation is a heavenly temple. It's a place that's filled with his glorious presence and brightness. This is what Genesis 1, 1 is telling us. God is building himself a throne room. Why is it important for us to see this? That the first thing God creates is his heavenly, eternal dwelling place. Well, it's important for us because it, it reminds us of what we are made for. Right? We are, this, this is our hope, right? Um, we see this as, as Christ himself is risen from the dead and ascends to heaven. He goes to this place. He's the risen second Adam. And his dwelling place is in the highest heavens. Right, and that's showing us this is what we were made for too. That's where we're designed to go. And Colossians 3.1 tells us to remember this, right? Colossians 3.1 If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. We can get sucked into the priorities of this world and this earth and think, this earth is primary. But God's design has always been to bring us into his heavenly presence. A number of years ago, uh, I saw a movie called Interstellar. Maybe you've seen it. And it's about this, uh, this guy who has this idea that um, the, the earth is, uh, is not going to last and we need to get a new home for humanity. And um, so it's going uh, to be in the stars um, and one of the lines in the movie that stuck with me was this. He says, Mankind was born on earth. It was never meant to die here. It's a Gamaliel moment where he speaks more truth than he knows, perhaps. Right? It's not that the earth is running out of resources. That's not the biblical truth. The biblical truth is that, yes, we were born on earth, but we were not meant to stay here. We were meant to go to this heavenly dwelling place of God. And this is what our Lord Jesus has accomplished, and this is supposed to control us and compel us. So we start there. But God not only creates the heavens, the text goes on to say he creates the earth. He creates the heavens as, his, uh, as a heavenly temple for himself, and then he creates the universe, the earth, to be a replica of this heavenly dwelling place. So this is our fourth heading, the earthly temple of God. The earthly temple of God. Um, Genesis 1 verse 2 goes on to describe this in more detail. Um, it says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So we're told this is how God begins his creation of the universe. It's without form and void. It's, um, it, it's like an embryo, right? It's the, the, the DNA is there. But it's not been formed yet. It's not been fully um, brought to maturity yet. And um, it's, uh, it's waiting for God's, for God's work. And we're told in the text that, that this, this universe, right, this, this earth that God has created is surrounded by darkness and, uh, 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 and, and covered in water. 
and over it the Spirit of God is hovering. It's an interesting word there, right? An interesting picture. Why does why is it so important for us to know that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters? The word used here for hovering um, is a rare word in Scripture. It's used only other only in one one other place over in Deuteronomy 32 verse 11. And there in Deuteronomy 32, Moses is describing in, in poetic fashion how God brought the people out of Israel, of Israel out, of, out of Egypt, rescued them, and brought them through the wilderness. Um, let, me, let me read a bit of the context there, Deuteronomy 32. It says, He found Israel in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness, which those words pick up on the same imagery of without form and void that are in Genesis 1-2. And then the text goes on, God encircled him, he cared for him, he kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. That word there, fluttering, like an eagle fluttering over its young. That's the same word that is used here in Genesis 1-2 verse for hovering. So in Genesis 1-2, the Spirit of God is hovering over the unformed and unfilled creation. In Deuteronomy 32, God is hovering over His fledgling, embryonic, new creation, Israel, bringing them into their promised rest. God is there in Genesis 1-2, right? What's the Spirit doing? He's, he's, He's nurturing this creation. He's going to bring it along by His almighty power to its mature, uh, mature fruition. And it's the same thing going on in Deuteronomy 32. The Spirit is there over the people of Israel, nurturing and caring for them. But even more is, is meant than this here, right? Think of, so think of this link with the Exodus and, 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 and um, Israel's experience going through the wilderness, right? In, in what form does the Spirit hover over Israel? It's a visible form, right? They see that cloud of glory as they go through the wilderness towards the promised land. There is this glory cloud over them. What's it represent? God's presence, His power, His presence with them, His holiness, His, his place with them. That's the presence of the Lord, right? It's His Spirit hovering over them, bringing them to the promised land. It was telling the people that God Himself was with them And in the creation account then, as Moses, who's the same author of Deuteronomy, as he's picking up on this, he's also speaking about how the Holy Spirit is hovering over this creation and he's marking it out as his own. He's filling it with his presence. He's filling it with his glory. This is telling us, brothers and sisters, the creation is not some neutral thing, right? It's a clock that's wound up and set ticking and not tended anymore, right? That's not what the creation is. It's not a neutral thing. It is a place that is filled with the glory and presence of God. God made the heavenly temple, and then He made the whole world to be a replica of that temple, to show forth His glory and His praise. What should Israel have learned from this? They should have learned that the same Spirit who hovered over the first creation and tended it by His almighty power and brought it to its maturity by His, by his almighty power. That Spirit is also the Spirit who was over us, tending and caring for us, 
Right? And right, think, think of Moses' purpose in this, where he's saying the other gods of the other nations can't match what your God has done. And Moses is saying, what other God? What other God is like this? Tending his people and nurturing his people and present with his people. Blessing and keeping and protecting them. What should we learn here? The same Spirit who hovered over the unformed and unfilled world in Pentecost comes down on the church, on us. And the Spirit is over us, and He's tending us and keeping us and preserving and protecting us, working faith in us, giving us life in Christ, preserving us, bringing us to our heavenly promised land by His almighty power. The words from one of our hymns put it well. He who in creation's dawning brooded on the lifeless deep, still across our nature's darkness moves to wake our souls from sleep, moves to stir, to draw, to quicken, thrusts us through with sense of sin, brings to birth and seals and fills us, saving advocate within. So this is what we learn. We are the new creation, aren't we? Right? We are the, 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 the dwelling place and the temple of God in Christ. And He fills us with His glory as the Spirit hovers over us and fills us. And so, with Israel, let us learn. We don't need to trust any other. No other eternal God. No other Creator. No other who, who's called us to His heavenly glory. No other who's with us to preserve us and nurture us and care for us until we're brought into fellowship with Himself in the heavenly promised land. This is our hope, brothers and sisters, that in Christ we are this new creation, that the power of God at work in the first creation is equaled by the power of God at work in us, now forming his new creation. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word and the first lesson in your word. There is none like you. Teach us this lesson to trust none other hope in none other, look, in none other, look to none other. And continue with us, we pray, by your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.